everyone. Welcome back to Ortha Radio. I'm Nick Bertha. Today we have another episode in our Fracture series. In case you haven't listened to some of our other previous episodes on the Fracture series, we use this to kind of talk about some of the most common injuries that we see come through the hospital in the emergency department. And we provide a little bit more background as to what we look for and what we do and how we manage these injuries. So today I wanted to talk about one of the other really, really common fractures that we commonly see, which is distal radius fractures. Colloquially, most people will just call these a wrist fracture. Uh, that is not necessarily true as there are a lot of bones that are in your wrist, but if you're talking about one specific wrist fracture, this is by far the most common wrist fracture. Uh, so this is typically what people mean when they say they have fractured their wrist. Distal radius fractures represent about one-sixth, about 17% of total fractures that we see in adults. These injuries are not just common in adults. They're also very common in kids as well. The most common way that this occurs is falling onto an outstretched hand, or what some people refer to as a foosh mechanism, or fall on outstretched hand. But there are plenty of other different ways that these fractures can occur. Sometimes this can occur from a direct impact right at the wrist, or it can occur in things like car accidents or falls from other heights. In general, though, this is something that we are seeing very, very commonly in patients as they get older, and a distal radius fracture, particularly from a standing height, is something that we consider a fragility fracture, or a fall that is indicative that you may have some weakening bone strength and you may be developing osteoporosis. So it's very commonly seen in elderly patients, particularly elderly females, as elderly females are more common to be at risk of developing osteoporosis than males are, uh, given the relation between estrogen and osteoporosis. What do we do when you fall in and you think that you have a fracture in your wrist? So you come to the emergency department, you come to our local urgent care, and usually the first thing that we do is we need to get a good history and physical, find out what happened, and we want to look. And you may have an obvious deformity of your wrist, and that tells us, okay, you have a fracture of your wrist, but that's not the biggest thing that we want to know right then and there. Some of the things that we really need to take a look at is, is there an injury to your skin? Is this an what we call an open fracture, meaning there's an injury that, that caused the bone to come out of the skin. If there is, we need to make sure that we're getting you antibiotics, and then that'll help guide our course moving forward as well. Otherwise, you could have what we call an impending open fracture, where the skin is not actually open yet, but we're concerned that it might become open, given the fact that the fracture fragment is pushing against the skin, and that tension on the skin could lead to death of that skin. If that happens, it can be an issue as you're going to have a difficult time getting that skin to heal over that area. So if that is the case, we want to make sure we get that reduced as soon as we can so that it helps minimize the amount of soft tissue injury. The other thing that we look at is your neurovascular status. Are all your nerves functioning correctly in your hand? Are you able to physically do everything with your hand? It obviously hurts, but it's important for us to know can you actually have functioning nerves? We also want to look at the blood supply that's going to your hand and make sure that you still have uh, adequate blood flow to your hand as well. Probably the most common and one of the most concerning findings that we see in terms of the neurovascular status is whether or not someone's developing carpal tunnel syndrome. The median nerve, or the nerve that goes through the carpal tunnel, is very, very close to where a distal radius fracture happens. And because of that, when you have the inflammation and the swelling that occurs, it can cause damage that occurs to the nerve at that time, and it could cause you to have symptoms of carpal tunnel syndrome. So if you're having that, that might be something that 
gets reduced when we just reduce your wrist and get your fracture back in place. It might be something that we need to treat surgically and open up the carpal tunnel to relieve the pressure on the nerve. Uh, but we kind of see how things go from there. So once we kind of get a good assessment of what is happening and what the story is and what things look like on a physical exam, we then want to get x-rays. So the x-rays are going to provide us the information we need as far as what the fracture pattern looks like and what we need to do going forward. In general, there are a lot of different classification systems that can be used for distal radius fractures. However, that's not the biggest issue, and we don't necessarily need to put it into a classification of one versus the other. What's important is whether or not there's involvement of the intraarticular surface and whether or not we are able to get the fracture back and to meet certain radiographic parameters and certain angles and heights so that we're able to kind of give your function back to your wrist as best as possible. So while there are a lot of classification systems, we really just want to be able to get it back to as close to anatomic as we possibly can. So in order for us to do that, the next thing that we'll always do in the emergency department is reduce your wrist and try to get the bones realigned. In order for us to do that, we'll provide you some pain relief, which we typically do in the form of what's called a hematoma block, where we inject some lidocaine directly into the fracture site itself. And that helps provide some relief of the pain. The emergency department often also gives some oral pain medications or IV pain medications if needed. It'll also help with some pain relief when we're trying to do that procedure. But the goal here is to be able to get the bones back aligned into as close as anatomic as possible. Because the closer that we're able to get it to the anatomic position, the more likely we are able to try to treat this non-operatively. And really what's that kind of based on is how stable the fracture really is. If you have a pattern that's very, very stable, then we might be able to be more apt to treat it non-operatively versus operatively as it does with many other fracture types, is what your functional status is. If you're a 30-year-old laborer who broke their wrist, even if we can get it back into a decent position, we may be more apt to try to fix that at a sooner time to try to give you the most optimal return to full function as possible. Whereas if you're someone that's 85 years old and you're wheelchair bound, it may not be as prudent to get your wrist to be totally anatomic, but as close as we can get it and let it heal up in that position. A, your wrist has a lot of ability to work around minor changes to the anatomy and you'll maintain really most of the function that you had before. And the other thing is that there's risk to surgeries, and if you're someone that's not particularly healthy or you're not using that wrist as much uh, as someone who's really young and active is, it might not really be worthwhile to, to go forward with a risk of surgery, and you might find that your function is just what you need it to be, and you're not having any issues with it. However, there are some factors that we look at to kind of tell us about the stability of the fracture, and some of those are included in what's called LaFontaine's criteria. And it's just a collection of criteria and risk factors that we have found typically are more predictive of fracture instability and failure of non-operative treatment. Some of those factors are age greater than 60, an angulation of the fracture initially greater than 20 degrees, 
dorsally specifically, meaning kind of going back, whether or not there's an associated distal ulnar fracture, the other, the other bone in your wrist, and whether or not there's intraarticular or dorsal comminution. And the reason that that's important is, especially the dorsal comminution, if the whole backside of the bone is totally crushed in and destroyed in small pieces, you're not going to be able to keep your fracture where we want it to, and it's going to keep falling through where all those little small pieces are not structurally sound, and it's not going to be able to have a good stability to it. So those are important factors that we utilize to decide uh, what the fracture is going to look like moving forward and whether or not this may or may not be something that we want to treat. But there are a lot of different factors that kind of go into it. It all kind of depends on your specific scenario. So. If we're able to get an acceptable reduction, what we'll do from there is try to monitor on a weekly basis with new x-rays and see if we were able to keep the fracture where we wanted it to during that time. So the goal of the splint is to try to kind of hold it where we reduced it to. So we want to check that each week. If we're able to keep it where we wanted it, great. And we'll continue to treat it as such. We'll eventually switch out of the splint into a cast. The nice thing about going in the cast is that it frees up your elbow and it allows you to start doing rotation of your wrist. But it also, you know, means that we're kind of still working towards the progress that we want to get it all fixed up. The bones typically take about six to 12 weeks to really adequately heal. We'll talk a little bit more about kind of what things feel like after you get the cast off and everything like that once we talk about kind of the post-operative course. So in that vein, let me talk a little bit about what happens if we can't get the fracture reduced or if it initially is reduced and then it falls off and becomes unstable or if just the initial pattern is inherently unstable. All those indications are reasons that we would do surgery. And depending on exactly what the fracture looked like would tell us what we would need to do. So there are some fracture patterns where you can essentially imagine that there's a piece that's broken off and it's just sliding down and it's sheared totally off. And when you have those pieces that have sheared, what you essentially have to do is create a buttress that holds that piece that sheared off back up where we want it to. And sometimes that can be on the front of your wrist and sometimes that can be on the back of your wrist. So we could either go on either side and be able to buttress those fracture pieces up. Sometimes the fracture is not involving the joint space. And typically we're able to go through kind of the palmar side of your wrist and go down and be able to put a plate that kind of holds it in place where we want it to. Sometimes those fractures are really comminuted and we're still able to kind of go down through the front of the wrist and be able to kind of hold those pieces where we want them to. And sometimes we're able to get something that's reasonable on that plate and be able to hold it where we want to. However, there are times where the fracture is very, very comminuted, particularly on the backside, and we just can't keep it where we want to by going through the front. So if we can't do that, we'll go on the backside and we'll put a plate that actually crosses your wrist joint itself and actually holds that pieces essentially out to length to allow them to try to heal over time. And while this might not seem like the most optimal scenario because that plate is crossing your wrist and therefore you can't bend and flex your wrist, it does allow time for the fracture to actually heal. Now, once the fracture is healed, we will go back in and take that plate out so you can get your wrist range of motion back. Uh, but it's sometimes something that we have to do in order to keep the fracture well reduced and to allow it to heal. Once things have healed, again, usually it takes about six to 12 weeks. At that point, we really start kind of harboring home that we need to start getting you moving. 
So even immediately after the surgery, we would typically put you in a little splint that goes just on one side of your wrist there. And what that does is it holds your wrist fracture in place, but it still allows you to rotate through your entire forearm because that rotation is occurring all the way from your elbow down to your hand. So by keeping your elbow free, we allow you to be able to rotate. So we do encourage patients to work on that rotation if possible. Once everything is off, I mean the cast of the splints, what we really want you to do at that point is really start working on getting your flexion, your extension back, and your rotation back of your wrists because you're going to find that because you've been immobilized for a period of time, you're going to be more stiff. And the immobilization is necessary, unfortunately. Uh, you know, we have to have that in order to allow the fracture fragments to heal back together and allow you to have better function of your wrist. But it does make things stiff. So we really got to get you guys to start doing things and making sure that you're moving them around. Uh, as I said, at the time of the surgery, sometimes we also have to do a release of your carpal tunnel if you're having symptoms that are going down into the carpal tunnel distribution. So that's something that you may get an additional incision for. Some of the other things that you can see that happen at the time of the surgery are sometimes there's instability between the radius and the ulna, or the two bones that make up your forearm right at the wrist there. And that joint there is called a distal radial ulnar joint. And sometimes we have to put some pins or we have to do another fixation method so that we're able to hold that in place to allow uh, those ligaments to heal back where they were and to kind of scar in in time. So. Uh, that all depends. Usually that's something that we kind of see more intraoperatively than we see preoperatively because it's something we have to kind of play around with and kind of see how stable it is once the actual fracture is fixed back in place. So uh, as we said, we, you know, we already kind of talked a little bit about some of the post-op course. You were keeping you immobilized for a period of time, and then we really start kind of working on getting our range of motion back. It takes a couple months for things to kind of even out and for patients to really start feeling much better. Some of the important things to kind of note as you get further away from the actual surgery is that sometimes patients will note that they start getting some kind of popping clicking noises that they feel when they are flexing or extending their wrists or their fingers and what can happen is actually sometimes when we put the plates or the screws in is that they're too prominent and they can kind of rub and irritate the tendons and if this is happening, this is something that's important for you to tell your physician because while for a period of time they may just be rubbing against it but allowing you to still use those tendons, those tendons could eventually actually rupture. So we try to mitigate this and we try to use very low profile plates and not go put them past a certain point so that they don't irritate the tendons. We try to keep the screws relatively short so that they're not sticking out a very large percentage out the other side of the wrist so that they're not irritating the tendons from that standpoint as well. So we do try to reduce this, but it is something that can happen and is more common in this specific fracture pattern than other fracture patterns. Other wrists are kind of general risks that you would expect to see. Um, you know, there's still risks for things like infections, stiffness. Sometimes, you know, we need to come back in and we need to take those plates out if they're causing problems for the tendons. You know, there's risks to the surrounding blood vessels, nerves, things like that. But we try to be careful with those and make sure that we're not causing any of those issues when we do these surgeries. Uh, but there are risks like any other surgery. The last thing I really kind of want to touch upon is what to do down the road. So now you've healed up from this fracture, but you're concerned, you know, am I going to get something like this again? 
So as I said, a lot of these fractures are really common in patients that have osteoporotic bone or very weak bone as they get older. So it's really important that if you have this kind of fracture, you should talk to your primary doctor and see whether or not you've been worked up for osteoporosis in the past. You know, are you on any osteoporosis medications? Do you need to get a scan to evaluate for osteoporosis? If so, we should move forward with that and make sure that you're on osteoporosis treatments. And there are a lot of different things, but we'll talk about that another time. The other thing is to try to work on prevention from having this happen again. And sometimes that's easier said than done. There's going to be no perfect system. But you want to look around your house and make sure that your home environment is safe. Make sure that you don't have things that you're going to trip on. You don't have loose carpets that you're going to slide on and fall down and cause a new fracture to occur. So while you know we can try to build your bone strength back up and try to prevent you from having fractures in that standpoint, you know the biggest thing is to try to just be careful and cautious so that you're not having a fall and trying to get yourself in this scenario to begin with. And that's easier said than done sometimes. So, but it is important. So with that being said, uh, that's kind of the generalities of what happens and what we would do when you come into the emergency department with a distal radius fracture and how we kind of manage some of our thoughts moving forward and whether or not something we can treat non-operatively or operatively. Thank you all for listening. I really appreciate your time. Glad you were all able to tune in and hear our next Fracture Series podcast. We'll be back with more episodes in the future. And thank you again for listening. We really appreciate it.